zone. You can't go. All the plants are gonna die. I'm gonna take a bath. Bad dates. I'll alert the media. Boys, keep off the moors. It's evil. Don't touch it. The name's Pliskin. No more hangers. Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're rewatching the 80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in chronological order, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today we're discussing Carbon Copy, released September 25th, 1981. It was written by Stanley Shapiro, directed by Michael Schultz, and released by Avco Embassy Pictures. After 23 years lying dormant, RKO Pictures somehow decided on this film to mark their resurrection. It was co-financed with the Hemdale Film Corporation in exchange for broadcast rights and domestic theatrical distribution, which it later sold to Avco Embassy. George Segal was offered the part of Arthur earlier this season and turned it down to do this. But that's kind of like saying Marvel was offered to Sony first and pretending like they regret it because Sony would have ruined those properties. Right. And a Seagal-led Arthur would not be in my top five for the year. And I love George Seagal. Yeah, he's great. But Dudley Moore made that role. Yeah. On a $6 million budget, the film earned back $4 million. But despite its failure to earn a profit, actor Denzel Washington, who made his feature film debut among the cast, is proud of the film and has no qualms discussing it with people because Denzel is a class act. All these people out here refusing to talk about their flops are cowards. The film is apparently rarely shown on television because modern audiences can't tell the difference between satirizing race relations and actual racism. Somehow, the film was given an R rating on its first pass, but the decision was appealed. Do you guys recall the last time we discussed a film going from an R to a PG without removing anything? Oh, um, shoot, I do remember us talking about that, and I don't remember what it was now. <laughs> it posted today. It was really recent. <laughs> All right, I don't listen was to our Was it podcast. The Birds? No. It posted today. Same time next year. That's right. <laughs> this film specifically seems very blatantly parodied by a cutaway in Family Guy episode Road to Rupert, season five, episode nine. This time around, I'm staying at home and things are gonna get better. Settling in, loving my wife, but then I got that letter. My black son, my black son. Now each day my heart is getting bigger Don't even remember sleeping with that lady, but I did My black son, he's coming to stay So yeah, this seems very blatantly based on this film specifically. We start with the corniest, most 80s-laced opening credits we've had so far. It definitely reads like a TV movie, and it's possible this transfers from the television broadcast version of the film, because it does start with a... This film has been formatted to fit your TV mm. screen moment. I don't think that they changed these opening titles, though. I don't know if they do or not, because we did have a situation with, I think, Choo Choo and the Philly Flash, where mm. they did change the opening credits out yeah. for the TV version, version. But they were, th these are by far the sort of cheesiest, like, yeah. when you think of an 80s title sequence, this is it. It looks like the same person who did the title sequence for On the Right Track, because yeah. it was all very colorful and, like, full-color graphics everywhere. It looks like it was it was put together in a newsroom. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We see an American flag blowing backward across the screen with the stars in the top right corner. We move to the palatial estate of our protagonist, Walter Whitney, played by George Seagal. He's in bed with his wife, Vivian, and trying to rape her in her sleep. Do you guys recall the last film we saw that opened on a bedroom window where a man was trying to force his wife into sex against her will? 
I mean, it's so frequent. It was, it's hard to tell. It was also <laughs> California, but further north. Um. Oh, was it the um, the one based on the news articles? Yep. Cereal. Yep, that's got the there. one. I got there. She wakes up and asks Walter to stop repeatedly, but he won't take no for an answer. And it's supposed to be funny. We're supposed to like this guy, and he's a fairly decent person for the rest of the film. This is not a joke about how he's, like, terrible and an awful husband. It's actually supposed to be funny. Which yeah. is which is why this is the most wrong-headed moment in the whole film for me. Wifely duties comes up frequently in yeah. this film. Based on the trailer, I was prepared for some offensive stuff here, but insanely, the racial commentary is the best-handled material in the script. All the sex jokes are just gross. I want you. Walter, Mom. you're scaring me. Oh, nothing to be afraid of, sweet baby. It's just an old friend coming for a visit. Open the door. Walter. I said open the door. <gasps> She literally has to fight him off and kicks him to the floor, just as their housekeeper, Bianca, pushes her way into the room. After she leaves, Walter asks who she is. Apparently, they just changed housekeepers from Estelle to Bianca. Walter, I had to fire her. I liked her. She kept forgetting her place. Bianca just arrived from Guatemala. Everyone's importing them from Central America these days. They don't resent being treated like servants. Why don't you import a husband who doesn't mind being treated like a servant? They argue more about how he's horny and she's not until he tackles her to the bed, but thankfully she's rescued again, this time by her daughter, Mary Ann, from a previous marriage. The girl is here to ask for money to go shopping with, and Walter insists she has enough clothes, but his wife Vivian disagrees. When the daughter leaves, Walter tries to pin political extremism on frigid women. That's why we're having all this trouble in the country today. We're a nation of sex-starved, frustrated men, so we jog and vote for the death penalty! We cut directly from this moment to Walter's job, where his boss, coincidentally Vivian's father, has already heard about this morning's struggle. Shocked. I did not try to rape my wife in front of the housekeeper, Nelson. Whatever my faults, I don't lack a sense of the theatrical. I majored in theater arts. Now, if I try to rape the housekeeper in front of my wife, that's drama. My daughter was in tears when she called me. She had no right to call you. Weirdly, his boss isn't here to punish him for what he's done to his daughter, but to suggest that he find women on the side to satisfy his urges with. Well, and then, like, it bothers me that it's written off here as in, like, the wife is being dramatic with the language that she's using. Yeah, even her father thinks that the story isn't true. Right. A wise man can always make discreet arrangements. I'm not the type of man who goes out cheating, Nelson. Not cheating, Walter. Not cheating. Think of it as easing the pressures on someone you love. On the way out of the office, Nelson's secretary tells Walter there's a man waiting for him in his office. I don't know, Roger Porter. Uh, Mr. Whitney, he says to tell you he's Lorraine Porter's son. The name Lorraine Porter rings a bell in his head, and he smiles at the thought of her. Have him sent up. Lorraine Porter's son. Later, he opens the door to his office to find Roger, a very young Denzel Washington, in the doorway. Roger seems very impressed by the trappings. Nothing ratty-tatty about this place. And that's the way it should be up here where the hog is fat. No meat scraps. We're talking T-bone steak here, huh? And man, you're it, huh? The big ace in the car deck. I'm sure glad our zodiac signs crossed. It's like my horoscope said. Capricorn, baby, consolidate your financial future today. 
Here I was thinking I was just another little poor black orphan boy going to freeze in the cold white world. Lorraine is... Your mother's dead? Gone. He asks about Roger's father, but he says Lorraine was never married. He makes a lot of jokes at her expense, and Walter takes offense on Lorraine's behalf. What the hell kind of thing is that to say? You don't talk that way about your mother. His patience for this conversation is run out. Roger lets Walter know more of what he knows, and implies that Walter and his mother were romantically involved in the past. Walter suspects this is an attempt at blackmail, and is shocked that Lorraine's own son could stoop so low. Well, if that's too much of a shock for you, you're liable to go into a coma when you get behind this. Hi, Hi Daddy. Daddy. Terrible music. <laughs> it's such a sloppy, sitcom-y beat that just sounds like <laughs> it comes from a show that teaches kids science. <laughs> Instead of continuing this conversation, Walter's first move is to speed directly to his attorney's office. He's in such a hurry that he clips a parking meter on his way to the curb, and then for some reason carries the decapitated meter around with him. This is something Cool Hand Luke essentially got the death penalty for, and this guy can just do it as a joke. His attorney, Victor Bard, played by Dick Martin, is shocked by the news, and we start the scene with his reaction just as Walter's parking meter is running out in his arms. Your son? He starts to admit all kinds of things that he's never told his attorney. On top of having a black son, he also changed his name from Weisenthal to sound less Jewish. His attorney offers him a puff of a joint. It's too late. Too late. Oh, come off it. You're not in that kind of trouble. I'm Jewish, my son is black, and my lawyer smokes pot. Don't tell me I'm not in trouble. Hey, it makes me feel better and does not affect my judgment. Do you remember the last time we had a lawyer that smoked pot? Fear and loathing? Or no, uh, where the buffalo roam? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, he did a lot of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's relevant. That's true. He tells his attorney the full story. He met Lorraine in college, and they were in a relationship. He got a copywriter gig at Nelson's company and only intended to work long enough to save up for a nice wedding. He accidentally came up with a terrific slogan. The biggest lie I could think of, Unilectron, the company that puts people ahead of profit. Was that yours? Yeah, it's a biggie. Two weeks later, I was a junior executive. Afterward, he got promoted to upper management. He was partnered with the boss's daughter, and Nelson told him that he'd never get anywhere married to Lorraine. But if he married Vivian, he could be running this company someday. We get a flashback to that fateful day. As we hear Nelson give the intimidating speech, we get Walter's editorializing between each line. It was more like the Pope talking to a parish priest. Someday you will sit in this chair, Walter. He promised the parish priest the Vatican. I'm only showing the concern your mother and father would show if they were alive. He slipped on my parents' ghost like you would an overcoat. As your mistress? Yes. But not marriage. He moralized. She would never be accepted by the right people. The fear of the unknown. As the wife of a plumber, a garage mechanic, an elevator operator, fine. A veiled threat to my future employment. We wouldn't want to lose you. A direct threat. I am not a bigot. He believed. But I am a realist. From that day, I've never known the difference between those words. The discussion ends with Nelson pointing out that people fall in love several times in a lifetime and he can do it again. Right to her. Tell her that getting married at the moment would not be practical. She'll understand. There are very understanding people. Apparently, Roger found a stockpile of Walter's letters and decided to reach out. Walter tries to deflect blame for what he's done by claiming it was rude of Roger to read them, but Roger doesn't buy it. He also keeps calling Walter daddy, which is freaking him out. Walter asks how he determined that they're related, and Roger says he spoke with his Aunt Clara, who Walter seems familiar with. The subject is settled there. 
This doesn't become a paternity test comedy. Walter is satisfied that Roger must be his son. Do they even have paternity tests in 81? I don't know. I don't think they did. Either way, it's it doesn't become a like, I'm going to figure out that you're lying. I'm just, right, right, I'm right. going to take your word for it because there's no reason you would lie and I believe you. And you know, Aunt Clara would never lie, not with her husband being a preacher. Okay. The highest... okay. I won't argue the fact that you're my son. You're a good sport, Dad. Walter asks if there's any chance they can keep this secret between them, but Roger has his eyes on being adopted. We cut to a beach where Walter goes to think, but Roger follows in his footsteps literally, breaking his concentration. Do you really expect to come and live with us? Are you ashamed of me, Dad? And stop calling me Dad! Well, what am I supposed to call you? Well, I don't know. Whitey, Honky, Mr. Charlie, anything but not Dad. Roger tries out each nickname and settles on Mr. Charlie, finding the other two disrespectful. The nickname Mr. Charlie began as a general nickname used by slaves to refer to their masters, and after the slaves were freed, it continued to be wielded as a derogatory term for white men, and in particular white men in power. In a second meeting with his attorney, Walter is advised to deny paternity. There's this boy who claims to be your son. He is my son. I think a judge is better qualified to make that decision. I can't deny it, not because he's my son, but because Lorraine was his mother. Walter hatches a plan to pretend Roger is an unrelated orphan who they can adopt for the summer as charity. Vivian is grossed out at the thought of it and asks why Walter would volunteer them for this program. We owe it to them, Vivian. When will we stop owing? They already have welfare, low-rent housing, special job programs, and four of their own television series. When will we stop owing and be even? Jesus Christ. I love that line. Because the director of this film is African-American. And obviously, the point of it is to show this is what white people sound like when you're paying attention and yeah. you realize that it's completely ridiculous. Like, oh, four shows. That should be fine. What do we yeah. have? Like a thousand? That's it. Walter tries to make it sound like they could be starting a trend that her friends would immediately join in on. Cynthia Robbins will be so green with envy, she'll probably go out and adopt one. That's true, isn't it? What about Gloria Pitkin and Elizabeth Webner? Inventor of the Webnar. <laughs> Not Webinar. That's a different Elizabeth. Frustratingly, Walter keeps referring to these underprivileged orphans in his imaginary program as colored, which I think even at the time was an unacceptable term. You think they'll let you and Cynthia get a step ahead of them? Even if they all go out and adopt colored orphans for the summer, it won't diminish the fact that you did it first. Like the heart transplant. No matter how many doctors do it afterwards, it's always Dr. Christian Barnard who will take the credit. You'll be the Christian Barnard of compassion. Hmm. You can even start an organization, call it Human Transplant, to take people with no hope and give them new life. Human Transplant. She seems to agree to the program, but suggests that Roger stay in the garage where he won't bother her and he could be more easily evicted if necessary. The next day... Walter is driving Roger around in his Rolls Royce, and Roger asks if he'll inherit it one day. Walter mentions that it's a company car, so he doesn't technically own it. It belongs to the company. It'll probably go to Marianne. Oh, you like Marianne more than you like me. Far, far more, and I'm not very fond of her. Roger mentioned earlier that he's 17, and Walter asks if he's in school, but he says he left a while ago. Walter urges him to go back and get his diploma if he wants to make a life for himself. Roger asks if Walter belongs to a golf club and if he can join. Walter isn't even embarrassed to admit that they would never allow it. Oh, you mean they don't have no black members? None. 
They stop by a clothing store and buy a new outfit for Roger that he seems uncomfortable wearing. If the brothers ever saw me, they'd think I sold out. Relax, Roger. There are no brothers in San Marino. Walter takes Roger home to introduce him to Vivian. Roger, we're having chicken for dinner. I just love chicken, man. I know you do. I had Bianca prepare especially for you. And just to be clear, this is a fried chicken joke. Right, and it's not like he called ahead and said what he wanted. She just assumed because he was black that that's obviously what he wants. She offers to bring Roger into their church to be a Presbyterian. You'll be a Presbyterian, Roger. Isn't that nice? Well, I was raised to be a Baptist and You'll I... be a Presbyterian. Vivian asks if he's in school, and he says he doesn't go to school, so they make plans to send him to a remedial program. For some reason, they give her daughter Marianne the deciding vote on whether this adoption will be finalized. Marianne gets her own line of questioning and starts with the big guns. Have you ever been arrested? That's an offensive question, Marianne. Yes, little sister, I've been busted by the pigs. Roger, in our community, the pigs are known as police officers. I like that she... Is sort of confessing that, yes, they are pigs, but we call them (laughs) police officers. But she's also talking to him like a child. Yes. He says he was beaten and arrested at a protest against the Klan for singing We Shall Overcome. When he repeats the lyrics at the table, Vivian is visibly uncomfortable and Walter asks him to stop. Black and white together. Black and white together. We know the song, Roger. And... Vivian makes Roger promise never to sing that song again, but if he must, to keep it in the confines of his own room. It seems like Vivian is the honky he was expecting his dad to be. The reason Marianne is being given the last vote is because of her new fiancé. His father is Judge Urkel. He's going to run for Superior Court. They worry it might affect Judge Urkel's campaign if his son's fiancé is living with an adopted orphan. Fiancé? Marianne and Dennis are going together, sort of unofficially engaged. When Marianne seems unlikely to approve, Walter takes issue with her having a say at all. I didn't take a vote when I adopted Marianne. She is my natural child. It was the only decent thing to do. By that logic, if he were my natural son, I'd have every right to expect you, my wife, to accept him. Don't make ludicrous parallels, Walter. No, I mean it, Vivian. If Roger were my son, you'd accept him? Yes, Walter, if he were your son, of course. All right, Vivian. I will let you be as good as your word. Roger is my son. I don't find that very amusing, Walter. Neither do I, but it happens to be a fact. That can't be. He's... uh, And so is his mother. Of course, she immediately goes back on her promise and is offended at what she considers a trap. God will never forgive you for having a black child. How do you know, Vivian? Maybe he'll be pleased. Maybe God is black. You will burn in hell for saying that, Walter. From the next room, Walter can hear Roger singing We Shall Overcome and shouts at him to stop. The score gets very dramatic as though someone died, and we cut to the exterior of the same house at night. Everyone is very somber, and there are several cars in the driveway. It turns out they're just reacting to the news, and nothing terrible actually happened. A doctor and priest have been called to attend to Vivian and Marianne to treat their shock. How is she? She's under sedation. Reverend Hayworth is praying with her. On his way out of the house, a doctor scolds Walter for scaring his family with this news. You must be a sadist to flaunt a black son in front of her. I didn't flaunt him. He's not black. He's what interior decorators call hickory bronze. Same color as your new car. I would just assume you did not compare that boy to my new car. (laughs) I like that line, though. He's hickory bronze. 
The doctor informs Walter that he can no longer expect any medical coverage from him. In fact, he threatens to purposely fuck things up. I no longer consider myself your personal physician. And I would advise you not to get sick in San Marino, Mr. Whitney. The Reverend, played by Tom Poston, comes down the stairs and informs Walter that the family is leaving to stay with Vivian's father, Nelson. He's also been told about Walter's theory of a black god and suggests the comet is to blame for Vivian's condition. If you ever want Vivian to speak to you again, go upstairs and tell her that God is white. <laughs> I love that line. He's so funny. But we're really not sure. I mean, the Hindus don't believe it, the Muslims, the Buddhists. God is white. It's simple logic. His son is white. That's not proof. I'm white. My son is black. <laughs> I just love Tom Poston so much. And he shows up for these, like, one-off scenes in yeah. movies. Like, he was so great in uh, Cold Turkey as, like, the guy who knew he wasn't going to finish the challenge, so he agreed to leave town at the beginning of it. The last lecture Walter gets here is from the big man himself, Papa Nelson. Nelson says that he needs to ditch his son because Roger is not fashionable, at least not yet, and he cannot legally recognize the boy if he wants a future at the company. The wind blows white, not black. Blows Whitney, not Weisenthal. Nelson is thinking down the line to the potentiality that when Walter's retiring, he might be handing over the reins to his company to Roger. Someday the torch of leadership, of power, will be passed to you. You must feel confident that when your turn comes to pass on the torch, he won't put it in the hands of someone who would burn down the country with it. Do you guys recall the last time a racist asshole accused black people of burning down the country? I do. Same time next year? That's right. Walter admits that he understands everything Nelson is saying, but also confesses that he cannot deny that Roger is his son. Walter, you are like a son to me. But as you well know, having a son can turn out to be a bitter disappointment. Walter prepares to go to work and advises Roger to hide in his room reading, or if he can't read, drawing. When he gets to the office, he is relieved of his car and quickly learns that he has no secretary or office. Orders from the man upstairs. I'm the man upstairs. While Walter stands there planning out his next action, another employee of the company shows up to collect his credit cards, company credit cards of course, and then chops them up right there in the parking lot. He finally gets to a phone in his lawyer's office to call his house when Roger informs him they're throwing all his shit out on the lawn, including his Dobro, which is a brand of resonator guitar made fully out of metal that were louder than regular acoustic guitars. Definitely not what I thought it was when they first mentioned it. My Dobro? It's like a GoPro, but for pizza? <laughs> it's, a, it's a pizza dough maker. Oh, okay. It's just a camera so you can tell when the pizza's done cooking. <laughs> Does that make sense? After he hangs up, he tells his attorney what she's doing, and the man admits that he advised her to do it. You advised? You, my dearest friend? My lawyer? I'm still your dearest friend, but no longer your lawyer. I agreed to represent Vivian in the divorce. His attorney has another lawyer to recommend to Walter, based on the specific details of the case, and we cut right to that lawyer's office. I don't object to him recommending you, Mr. Garvey. I object to the reason why he recommended you. Of course. The attorney, Bob Garvey, is African-American, played by Oscar nominee Paul Winfield. Looking over Walter's paperwork, his new attorney asks how he intends to pay for legal services because there's no money here. All these accounts are in his soon-to-be ex-wife's name, and he has no way to pay. All right. Cutting through all the talk, Mr. Garvey. What am I worth? How much have you got in your wallet? $68. You mean that's it? That's it, baby. 
and I really wanted Garvey to say, then you're worth $48 and take $20 away for a consultation <laughs> for, for services. Well, it, it, it bothers me, though, that he's supposed, I mean, maybe he's not, but he's supposed to be this savvy business guy, and he doesn't know that he doesn't have any assets oh, in his name. Yeah. I don't I don't think that, that bothers me as much because I don't think he is a savvy business guy. He came up with one dumb quote and he got like a desk job where he does nothing. And all now day. and now he's treated so well because he's married to right. the daughter of the owner. And I think Nelson has probably a highly powerful team of attorneys that are making sure that literally nothing is in his name so they can take it all yeah. away at a moment's notice. I feel like he would still have some things like a life insurance policy that you could cash out. Maybe. He for sure has a life insurance policy. Maybe. Maybe he's got some Bitcoin rolling around. <laughs> Garvey pulls a couple beers out of his mini fridge to share with the man. He tells Walter that his former father-in-law is forcing him to live as a black man to win him back to the company. Later, we see Walter and Roger checking into a cheap hotel, and after they pay for the room, the woman who owns the place tells them she'll give three short rings on the phone if the vice squad shows up. I can't tell if this is a joke that Walter is here to buy drugs from Roger, or that they are here for sex together, but the woman is very amused by Walter's claim that Roger is his son. It's definitely the latter. Okay, that's what, that's how I read it the first time. Yeah. But then later on, and, and in other podcast reviews of this movie, people were saying, oh, because they think he's an old guy that's just here to buy drugs from a kid. You don't need a hotel room to buy drugs. People do that, though. Do you buy a whole hotel room just to buy drugs? Yeah, it's part of why uh, when... A lot of hotels won't actually check out a room to someone who lives in the same city because it's either there for sex or drugs selling things. He happens to be my son. <laughs> I've heard them all, mister, but that's cute. <laughs> hey, Daisy, fell out here somewhere, let's say. <laughs> in their room, Roger tries to smack a quarter out of their pay TV, but Walter makes him stop. The next day, Walter seeks employment from friends, but word has gotten out what he's going through, and no one can hire him. Nelson called the old man this morning, Walter. No chance, huh? Your name is shit around here. A friend tries to offer him cash to survive on, but Walter is too proud to accept it. Well, see you around. See me around where, Walter? That's true. Walter heads to a bank to take out a $2,000 loan, but his regular banker doesn't trust him to pay anything back. I'm giving you the ultimate collateral, Walter Whitney's word. But... Your name is it Walter Whitney. Back in their room later, Walter realizes they only have $30 left to survive on. He shares a bagel with his son and claims it's soul food. This is soul food? To my group, yes. You know, you're not the only people who have soul. That sandwich is the result of 6,000 years of suffering. Roger asks why he changed his name if he's so proud of his Jewish heritage. Roger tries on both last names and agrees that Whitney sounds fancy, and Weisenthal sounds like people would make fun of him. Walter is annoyed and goes for a walk, where he notices a father and son practicing basketball in a park. He challenges the father and son to a game of two-on-two -two fathers and sons. When he comes back, both fathers think he's brought a ringer in the form of Roger, but Roger doesn't get a chance to explain that he sucks at basketball. You didn't tell me we were going to play basketball. Don't slam dunk it right away, it'll scare him. When the game kicks off, we hear the Harlem Globetrotters theme over people sucking at basketball, which we learned earlier is actually the old jazz standard Sweet Georgia Brown. Do you guys recall the last time we heard Sweet Georgia Brown playing over a basketball game? Um, As a Harlem Globetrotters reference? Was it an airplane? No. But I assumed that would be your guys' first guess because it has an actual basketball player in it. Yeah. But it's also people sucking at basketball. I was going to say, uh, what was the the visitor or 
Well, you're close. Yeah. Was, you're close with The Visitor. Because I was thinking of, of movies that had basketball on it. It is a movie with aliens also. Oh, uh, I got it. It's the 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 made for TV but not made for TV one with That's the green right. monkey. What was that called? Earthbound. Earthbound is correct. Yeah. Very good. <laughs> the strangers win the game handily. As they walk defeated back to their apartment, Roger recommends a place that will hire anyone if Walter's willing. Apparently, someone told him about it while he was giving them a ride, and Walter is livid to learn that Roger has kept a car secret this whole time. It's quite a Frankenstein of a totaled vehicle, though, and they can barely get a few blocks in it. What the hell was that? I don't know. We may be on fire. On fire? <laughs> I like how he really doesn't care about it. Like, he's so smooth for this whole movie. Like, every single line that he delivers is just so great. I'm sure they were all, like, first takes, too. Denzel's just magical. Yeah. During the scene where they're driving the car, yeah. I was like, oh, well, this is this is L.A. It is, yeah. Because San Marino's in Los Angeles. Yeah, but, like, like but uh, as far as, like, the specific, like, areas, like, right. you know. I, I started to recognize storefronts and stuff from mm-hmm. the valley. I definitely see them on Chandler and Magnolia a bunch. Yeah, and, like, they were driving on Coenga. I was like, okay, yeah. I, know, I know exactly where this is. The brakes go out, and they accidentally push a bicyclist into an open car door on the side of the road. In the room that night, Roger suggests signing up for welfare, but again, Walter would consider that a surrender on his part. It suddenly occurs to Walter where they keep the money at home in a safe behind a painting, so he breaks into his own bedroom that night dressed as a burglar. This is the most cartoony moment in the film, I feel like. Yeah, but it gets worse really quick. (laughs) Behind the painting, he finds an empty box, and when he claps it shut, his wife bolts upright in bed. She realizes there's a burglar in the room and surrenders herself to the stranger sexually before he even has a chance to imply that's what he's here for. Do you guys recall the last time we saw this joke about a woman prematurely surrendering to an intruder sexually? The intruder just laughed it off and walked out of the room. Polyester? No. Cheech and Chong's next movie. I still don't remember. Because Chong was like, oh, I got to go into that apartment and get something. And then he went into the apartment and the woman was like, go ahead, rape me, see what happens. In that scene, Chong is amused by the woman, but here Walter decides to take advantage of the opportunity. Roger gets the address for the job who will hire anyone, and it's basically a parking lot and trucks pull up all day with manual labor work. Both Roger and his attorney Bob Garvey are impressed by Walter's determination. After a few truckloads of workers are taken away, the last truck has to choose between Walter and perpetual wino actor Carmen Filpy. This reminds me of a very similar scene in Fun with Dick and Jane. Do you ever see that? No, the the newer one with like either the, one. Yeah. I think the same scene is in both. But I I was thinking of Jim Carrey doing it because he does this thing where he's in the crowd of the workers taking manual labor in a Home Depot parking lot. Right, right. I feel like it's unrealistic though to imagine a middle-aged white man who would have to resort to standing in a parking lot to get work. Because I realize that like none of his friends are going to hire him, but there's still like this whole category of jobs between standing on a street corner for day labor and executive. Right. (laughs) But even still, if I pulled into that parking lot and I had these two to choose from, I'd go with Carmen Filpi because he's like a string bean and he looks like he actually does this all the time. And then the other option is this like, pudgy older white guy who's wearing a tie and like yeah. a three-piece suit and it's like there's no way you're going to be able to do any work in that but the guy picks walter see I, and i thought the joke was going to be that he doesn't pick walter that, yeah that he yeah. that he does pick the wino and i think at first walter thought that too he's like oh sorry i guess you won and he's like no you buddy well it's because they said you dummy and right and so he's, he's like oh that's not me the other guy <laughs> 
Walter barely has time to get in the bed of the truck before it pulls away. And I think this is actually George Seagal, like, jumping into this truck as it's skidding down the road. I hope not. It looked pretty cool. The job is to shovel manure in a barn all day. The man drops Walter back off where he picked him up at the end of the day, and Roger finds him there. Walter can barely sit up straight or say a word, and Roger takes him back to their room. Walter tucks his earnings for the day into a coat pocket and then turns to look out the window at all the people who have to live this life every day. We see kids riding bikes past graffiti that reads Death to the Ruling Class as Roger pulls up to park. This is their new apartment in Watts. I don't mind living in Watts, but do we have to live in the poor section? The apartment is a complete mess. Cabinets are torn open, the ceiling has gaping holes in it. This whole floor of the building has a shared bathroom, but each room gets their own toilet seat so that they can keep it clean. Yeah, and just get yourself some shower sandals. Perfect. Now, it wasn't easy for me to get you in here, Mr. Charlie. I mean, they weren't too happy about having a white person in the building. You're here on a trial basis. Well, I don't want to lower the standard of living. Roger sits on a couch and a spring pokes him, so he uses their custom toilet seat to sit. Walter notices a box in the room, and Roger says it's full of his mother's things. Then he watches him open it. It's Walter's clothes from a long time ago that Lorraine held on to in the hopes he might return. Roger makes fun of Walter when he sees the shoes don't fit, and Walter says they don't fit because he's been working all day. In a couple of weeks, you're going to have a trade. You'll get a job. And then each of us goes his own way. Until that time, I'll shovel it. I'll live in it. But I won't take it. Meaning he's done taking Roger's shit. For the first time, Roger looks genuinely impressed. Roger goes for a walk, and Walter fishes his dobro out of their junk pile. He lays back to play it by himself on the couch. As the camera pans around the room, it lands on Nelson and Vivian walking through the door. They're here to offer him another lifeline. Nelson admits he's impressed that Walter has withstood so much. Walter asks what will be done about Roger, and they intend to sell him off to the military. And if by chance he survives? Clearly they are writing Roger out of the family photo permanently. Nelson gives the floor to Vivian to plead with Walter. She promises she can be warm and compassionate again. But only for burglars. Oh, Walter. I knew that was you all along. I don't know why they gave her this line, because it totally negates the point of that scene. Yeah. Yeah. After they leave him alone again, Walter hears gunfire outside and jumps off the couch. Outside, he sees Roger running full speed down the sidewalk. He comes skidding into the apartment and says the cops mistook him for thieves, and he ran when they showed up. Innocent people don't run from the police. Yeah, maybe not in San Marino, Mr. Charlie. They were probably just trying to find out what happened. Yeah, when a cop yells, freeze your ass, nigga, he's made up his mind what happened. The cops pound on the door, and Walter tosses his son into the Murphy bed, which then folds up into the wall. Do you guys recall the last time we saw someone folded up into a wall in a Murphy bed? Uh, I remember that the earth moved. That's further back. Oh. The, well, there's the Great Muppet Caper and Little Miss Marker. Correct. And. The one he said. What is the, what is that movie? What is the earth moved from? I don't remember. What else is happening in that scene? (laughs) A girl wants to watch a talk show that hasn't started yet. And that's her excuse for not having sex with a guy. It's because she wants to watch a show that hasn't even started yet. And then he gets frustrated and punches the bed and it folds up into the wall. I don't know. Gas. Oh, uh, I've completely blocked that one out. You'll, I'll never remember that. Go on, gas. <laughs> yeah. We don't know. Keep gassing. <laughs> 
Y'all just... are so close. <laughs> oh, it just made me sad because Leslie Jordan Jack. I know. I just realized I was doing his voice. <laughs> it's terrible. Oh, shit. How y'all doing? <laughs> <laughs> I love that guy. That's a bummer. With Roger successfully hidden, Walter moves to answer the door just as the cops kick it in. He hides behind it as they enter with guns drawn and then shouts to distract them before running out the door. I wanted them to just shoot him to death. <laughs> right as he's leaving, he's like, shove off, pigs. Bang, bang, bang. He just falls down the steps. Well, what I thought was going to happen was they were going to barge in and just see that there was a white guy here and go, oh, oh never mind. like, sorry, sorry sir. sir. Yeah. Carry on. Shove off, pigs. They chase him back out onto the street and we cut to a shot looking between bars at Roger at a table in jail. The immediate implication is that he still got arrested for the crime that he didn't commit, but then we notice that there's a divider down the middle of the table, and Walter is let in by prison guards. He has successfully been arrested to protect his son. Roger isn't completely won over yet. He says that Walter's only doing these things to win points with him, but that he still sees him as fundamentally different. He thinks his mother deserved better than this guy. I looked at you in that big office and I kind of went crazy inside. I said to myself, this is the man who broke mama's heart. The man she spent her whole life loving and waiting for. And she died loving you, Mr. Charlie. I think you ought to know that. He admits that this whole plan has been a scheme to get Walter angry enough to hit him so he could fight back. But no amount of revenge will bring his mother back. You should have given her a better life. I should have given her a better life. Walter emphatically agrees with Roger. He confirms for Roger that he loved Lorraine very much. Roger says Walter doesn't have to stick around until he lands on his feet. He has Roger's permission to return to his family and cushy job. We cut right to Nelson's office, and they have a bit of a disagreement on how different people should be treated. Well, you can't have winners if you don't have losers. Why can't we all win, Nelson? No losers? That's what life is all about. Even death has heaven and hell, winners and losers. It's hard to hate you, Nelson. You have just enough logic to give your sickness respectability. You've sentenced whole races of people to be born losers. And as the father of one, I object. Not that he was born with two strikes on him, but that you won't give him a third pitch to swing at. He's not here to take back his life, but to reject it. On the road out of Los Angeles, Walter rides with Bob Garvey to wherever Roger is. Walter is confused why his son is no longer pursuing the trade they planned for, and Garvey explains that he'll be starting college soon. Turns out, when Roger said he left school, it was because he graduated early. Walter just assumed he meant he didn't finish. And that was actually my first thought when they were in the car and he said that. I was like, oh, the twist here is going to be that he's graduated already and yeah. he's doing fine. Roger received a scholarship from Northwestern. That's where I went. He's in his second year of pre-med. Walter realizes that Roger was right, that he saw a black son before he saw his own son. They eventually find Roger on the side of the road working on his broken down car. Amusingly, because Washington plays a doctor after this in St. Elsewhere, yeah. it's possible this is a prequel to that. Hmm. It's funny, when they when they mentioned earlier that uh, sending him into the military, I was thinking of uh, Courage Under Fire. Oh, or Glory. Also, yeah. What? <laughs> we got to send him into the army back in time. <laughs> Now that the secret's out, Walter tells Roger that he might find a part-time job near the college so they can spend more time together. I mean, maybe we'll never get to be friends, but then maybe we will. I mean, it's worth a try. Yeah. Roger agrees to bring Walter along on his drive, so Walter collects the rest of his crap from the backseat of Garvey's car. 
Garvey is ecstatic to see this father stepping up and taking responsibility. Well, all right. <laughs> all right. Father and son drive their jalopy out into the desert, and once they get going, Roger slips a photograph out of his pocket. Hey, by the way, found this picture of mom. Thought you might like to have it. Walter looks at the photo for a moment, and father and son share a glance as though this is a punchline of some sort. Yeah. I was so confused. It's very weird. I was ready for them to say, wait, that's not the Lorraine yeah. I knew. Yeah. It's a Japanese woman. It's like, what? <laughs> the or, fuck? Or I thought it wasn't going to be him in the photo. Like, you know, uh, George Seagal. <laughs> yeah. And, and I was like, is that him? I can't. The quality is so bad. Is that him? I don't know. What is this a joke? It's Elliot Gould. It's like, <laughs> what do we all look alike? <laughs> it's just a photo of Walter and Lorraine together. In his lap is the Dobro, so maybe the point is that he kept it all this time as a memory of her. Mm. But I don't think that the camera focuses on it enough that oh, that's is the it, point. Is the guitar thing in the picture? Yeah. yeah. Oh, I missed that. And I think that when he's playing it on the couch, it's because he's thinking about her. And it's the only possession that he cares about when he finds out that they're throwing all of his stuff in the lawn. Ah. And the skis, apparently. They could have hit that a little harder, I think. Well, there were also skis behind them in the photo. (laughs) 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 Richard bought it for like a quarter of a second. I was like, wait. (laughs) (laughs) No, this is Patrick's bullshit again. (laughs) They both laugh and the corny song starts up again for the first time with lyrics provided by the great Paul Williams and the version with words is a little more tolerable than the super synthy nonsense one. Parts of the car fall off in the road as they disappear to the horizon and the credits scroll. That's Carbon Copy. It's not nearly as racially gross as I expected it to be. It's uh, actually like a sweet story between a father and son, and it has important things to say. But all the sex stuff is so weird, it feels like the studio pushed them to put this stuff in there because they were like, (laughs) You got to do something. It can't just be a heartwarming father-son story. And uh, it's not super funny. No. It it feels much closer to just being a straight drama. And I also, like, as much as I love Denzel and everything, I feel like his character doesn't get enough to do here. Because so much of the film is him playing a character. Like, he's, he's not just playing Roger, but he's Roger playing a fake Roger to screw with Walter. Mm-hmm. and I feel like we don't really get a, a good sense of the actual character of Roger yeah. because the whole time he's in this prank mode. Yeah. But uh, I think him and George Seagal are great. I think they have chemistry together. I think they're they're uh, entertaining. Yeah, I, it was it was okay. Like, yeah. There was, not, there was nothing wrong with this movie. I think that you're right in that, you know, it was it was clever in terms of the satire, but it's just not... It's not a movie that I think has a lot of rewatchability. Right. And I can see why it landed at Avco, even with bigger people in it, like George Seagal and and Jack Warden, because at the time, I think the bigger studios were already getting to the point where they're like, we need to be more sensitive about this stuff. And this this scared them, I think. Yeah. Even though it's it's harmless. Um, I, I think that's why Avco was like, all right, well, maybe maybe we'll get some points for doing the thing that seems a little bit unsafe and people will come out and see it for that reason alone. Yeah, but people are stupid. And they also didn't do that, so it didn't it didn't make a lot of money. But yeah, it's a fine movie. I'm still giving it the thumbs down I expected. Oh yeah, yeah, oh, I'm yeah. giving yeah. it the yeah, thumbs sorry. down. Yeah, <laughs> sorry. Let me start with that. For sure it's a thumbs down for me. I don't know what I felt like most of this movie. Uh, like uh, that opening threw me for like it's like is this what this movie's going to be and it yeah. instantly kind of like soured my attitude towards the movie. Right. And it took me a little while to kind of like warm up to what was going on. Honestly, you could probably very easily cut that first scene out 
and then that conversation with his dad in the or with her dad in the office yeah and then the whole rest of the movie feels normal and it still has the weird burglary thing but that would come out very easily too yeah and and then like you said uh they take back that line anyway right like they take that moment like she's like, like oh i knew it was you and it's like Okay, so do you, are you back in love with me? Like, would you have invited me into the house anyway if I wasn't in costume? Yeah, like, I don't, I don't get what that was about. But it's fine. It's it's forgettable. Yeah. It's, it's just a, it's just a, a, a I want to say mediocre movie because I don't think that that's true. But I don't know. Like, I, I really don't have anything to say about it because I just don't feel anything about what it. What would your post-credit scene for this movie be? My post-credits scene? Yeah. Because <laughs> I just realized what mine would be. Uh. I think it would be funny to have him be well because he mentions getting a job somewhere, but it's really vague about what it is. <laughs> so it's like fast food or something. Well, I was gonna say it's either fast food or or like I can see him like working at a dealership, oh, like okay, like yeah. like he's like selling cars or something. Yeah, or he's playing at Dobro somewhere, or with a band maybe, make it even more heartwarming. Yeah, but the uh, the post credit scene I was thinking of would be, um, it's like the middle of the night. And you're looking at just a, a window. You're looking out of a window from a bedroom, and a burglar climbs up, and then he opens the window, and it's Walter's attorney <laughs> dressed as a burglar because he's now with oh. Vivian. <laughs> and so it's just like uh, that's just their thing. That's their role playing thing now because she realized she had a thing for burglar fantasies. And then, but when he gets inside, Nick Fury is sitting there. <laughs> no, that doesn't make sense. Um. <laughs> Letterboxd. What did you have for this one, Jess? Uh, so I have this one um, at number 80 out of 126. Um, it's below Backroads, but above Modern Romance, which I think had... Yeah, I know I know, I know, know you love that movie like for some reason, but that's, that's how I feel about this one, where I'm just like, yeah, there's some interesting writing happening, but I don't want to watch that again. Oh, my goodness. <sighs> Richard, Letterboxd. Um... I'm 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 shifting it. Shifty. I drive cars that shift themselves. Alright. I am putting it there. I rank films that shift themselves. <laughs> uh I have it at sixty, uh, which puts it below Deadly Blessing and above Endless Love. Above Endless Love? Oh my gosh. <laughs> you guys hate my favorites. I have this in 90th, uh, which is just under Winter of Our Dreams and just above Continental Divide. I don't think either of you will complain with those (laughs) 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 because there's a wide gap between those two movies. Um, Our director here is Michael Schultz. He's an African-American director, possibly only our third after the directors of Hearse and Stir Crazy. He previously directed Cooley High, Car Wash, and Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. He went uncredited for his work on Bust and Loose after extensive reshoots. He later directs The Jerk 2, the TV movie, and The Last Dragon. He also directed a handful of young Indiana Jones episodes, some Allie McBeals, some Chucks, an episode of Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, Arrow, Blackish, New Girl, and more recently he directed a few Black Lightning episodes. The writer here was Stanley Shapiro. Shapiro also wrote Dirty Rotten Scoundrels and the remake The Hustle with Anne Hathaway and Rebel Wilson. That's... That's two very different films. Did he write both or was he just like original story by? No, credited screenwriter on both films. The music here was from Bill Conti from Gloria and Private Benjamin last season. And for your eyes only, Victory, Patreon pick, and Unmarried Woman this season. He's back for Neighbors later. 
He composed Harry and Tonto, Next Stop Greenwich Village, and most famously, The Rocky Theme. Cinematographer Fred J. Konekamp was the DP on 90 episodes of The Man from Uncle, and later Patton, Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, Billy Jack, Papillon, The Towering Inferno, Fun with Dick and Jane, The Swarm, The Amityville Horror, and we've seen his work so far on The Hunter, First Family, and First Monday in October. Editor Marion Seagal, she was an associate editor on Last Married Couple, which also stars George Seagal, with whom she shares a last name and also a marriage. <laughs> she would separate from Seagal in 1983 and went on to marry Graduation Day director Herb Freed. George Seagal played Walter Whitney. He was on Just Shoot Me. He has an Oscar nomination for Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. He's Dr. Benton C. Quest in 96 Johnny Quests. He's Mikey's dad in Look Who's Talking. He's in The Hot Rock, Where's Papa, Roller Coaster, and hundreds of episodes of The Goldbergs. Susan St. James played Vivian Whitney. She's the titular wife of Macmillan and Wife. We've seen her so far as Jane in How to Beat the High Cost of Living. She was also Kate in 122 episodes of Kate and Allie, opposite How to Beat the High Cost of Living co-star Jane Curtin as Allie. Jack Warden played Nelson Longhurst. We saw him in Used Cars last season and The Great Muppet Caper and Choo Choo in the Philly Flash earlier this season. He's also a juror in 12 Angry Men. He's Big Ben in Problem Child and Pops in Dirty Work. He also got Oscar nominations for his appearances in Heaven Can Wait and Shampoo. Dick Martin played Victor Bard, the attorney. Together with Dan Rowan, he created the sketch comedy program Laugh-In. Rowan and Martin's Laugh-In. Do you guys recall the last time we saw Dick Martin on the show? They were on the set of Rowan and Martin's Laugh-In in a black and white photograph. Nope. During one of the montages. Oh. oh. Same time next year. In same time next year. Denzel Washington played Roger Porter. This was his first feature film. He later found success as Dr. Philip Chandler in 137 episodes of Saint Elsewhere. Later in the 80s, he cemented himself as a Hollywood icon with a Best Supporting Actor nomination for Cry Freedom and then by taking home the Best Supporting Oscar for the role of Private Trip in Glory. From there, he shows up in Mo Betta Blues, Malcolm X for another nomination, Philadelphia, Hurricane for another nomination, Training Day for a lead actor Oscar, and regular nominations since then for Flight, Fences, Roman J. Israel Esquire, and The Tragedy of Macbeth. Denzel Washington does not have a bad performance in his entire filmography, but I just have to say he is really wonderful in the film Flight. I just remember being yeah. fascinated by every choice that he made, and he's just so entertaining and interesting in that whole movie. Paul Winfield played Bob Garvey. He was Nathan Lee in Sounder, for which he was nominated for an Oscar. He's Keegan in Damnation Alley. He's back later in Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, White Dog, The Terminator, The Serpent in the Rainbow, and Mars Attacks. He also did the voice of the Mirror on The Charmings, which is that canceled sitcom about fantasy characters mm -hmm. falling through a portal into San Fernando Valley. Uh, I, I, when I was seeing him in this movie, I just kept thinking back to his part in Mars Attacks where he's calling he's his general. wife. He's like, didn't I tell you if I just kept my mouth shut and didn't do anything, I, I'd, I'd get ahead. <laughs> oh, it's so great. I love that movie. Macon McCallman played Tubby Wiederholt. <laughs> that was Tubby Wiederholt. <laughs> uh, that was the, the banker. Oh, okay. Uh, we saw him last as Deputy Queen in Deliverance, and earlier this season he was Dr. Atkins in The Incredible Shrinking Woman, not that Dr. Atkins. <laughs> because it was a fictional character he's back right around the corner as ben in dead and buried he also shows up in Smokey and the bandit the concord airport 79 and in fried green tomatoes as prosecutor percy 
Vicky Dawson played Mary Ann. She's back later this season as Pam McDonald in The Prowler. Parley Bear played Dr. Bristol. He's Mayor Roy Stoner on The Andy Griffith Show. He's also Mr. Henson in The Addams Family. He's Doc Appleby on Dukes of Hazard, And later he's Grandpa Anderson, Corey Haim's grandpa, in Licensed to Drive. Vernon Weddle played Wardlow. He was Reverend Hubbard in Norma Ray and General Washburn in Short Circuit. Edward Marshall played Freddy. We've seen him so far as Bob Enright in 9 to 5 and a doctor in The Hand. Ed Call played the father on the basketball court. He's Mr. Lance, Johnny Depp's dad, in A Nightmare on Elm Street. Angelina Estrada played Bianca. She was Aunt Bolita in Up in Smoke, Rosa Santiago in Ghost, and Carlos's mother in Freddy's Dead the Final Nightmare. Carmen Filpi played Wino. We last saw him as another Wino in Escape from New York and then a minisode for On the Nickel. Later, he's a Wino in Pee-wee's Big Adventure. He's a messenger in Beetlejuice. He's Reverend Jackson P. Sayer in Halloween 4, a Wino in Alligator 2, and Old Man Withers in Wayne's World 2. Yeah, the his part in Beetlejuice, he's like the guy who's flat, yeah. right? And, like, and he just keeps going into the crack in the wall. Like, How do I look? There are no mirrors on this side. <laughs> <laughs> Kenneth White played Burly Man. He was Chester in Up the Academy and Grumman Rep in Apollo 13. Tom Poston played Reverend Hayworth. He makes regular appearances on The Bob Newhart Show, The Steve Allen Show. He was Mr. Bickley on Mork and Mindy. He's George Utley in 148 episodes of Newhart. More recently, he was Kitty Foreman's father, Bert, on that 70s show, and we saw him last year in Up the Academy as an unfortunate gay stereotype, and then again in our Patreon review of Cold Turkey. Greg Finley played First Guard. He's the voice of a mascot in Ace Ventura Pet Detective, but I don't know which mascot. Presumably Snowflake. Are there many in there? Um, well, I mean, uh, it's probably the mascot that he fights at the end. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Jim Greenleaf played Basketball Boy. He played Fat Solowitz in Gorp. He was also Ox in Evil Speak and Swanson in Tag the Assassination Game. Helen Barron played Secretary. She was Selma Lemish in Private Benjamin and Woman Buyer in Poltergeist. Patrick Wright played Truck Driver. He's Brad Phillips in Cannonball and another Truck Driver in Graduation Day. Lee Garlington played an extra. Garlington was also an extra in King of the Mountain earlier this season. And Lee is back as Myrna in Psycho 2 and 3 and Nancy Stalk in Cobra. I think that's everything for Carbon Copy. If you guys have any thoughts you'd like to share, we are Vintage Video Pod on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Letterboxd, where, as I've said before, you can find each of our full movie rankings for the year. We can also be found at VintageVideoPodcast.com. We also have a Discord now. You can join the 24-7 movie chat and share your thoughts on episodes past, present, and future at VintageVideoPodcast.com slash Discord. And if you're listening on YouTube, don't forget to subscribe. What's that sound? We got one! That's right. It's a new patron, Sinju. As a $5 patron of the show, Sinju now has access to 34 full-size 70s reviews and 40 minisodes from 1980, and a hand in choosing next month's film. For December of 1972... $5 patrons are choosing between the following 13 titles. Oh, boy. (laughs) Decembers are always an embarrassment of riches, and I apologize for anything we won't get to from this pack because they're all pretty great. Avanti, Billy Wilder's romantic comedy based on Samuel A. Taylor's play of the same name about a man, Jack Lemmon, sent to retrieve his tycoon father's body from Italy only to learn the man has died with his mistress. Child's Play, Sidney Lumet's non-killer doll film, from the same editor of the killer doll film, a mystery about feuding instructors at a Catholic boarding school starring James Mason, Robert Preston, and Bo Bridges. Cries and Whispers, 
Ingmar Bergman's drama about the reunion of three sisters as one of them nears death of cancer, starring Harriet Anderson, Carrie Silwan, and Ingrid Thulin. The Doberman Gang, Byron Chudnow's action comedy about a bank heist that utilizes six Doberman pinchers. The first film of composer Alan Silvestri and is shot entirely on location in Simi Valley. Yeah. Isn't this the one that you looked up for a guy on Twitter? Yeah, somebody was just asking us about this one. That's why I was like, I should put that on the list then. The Getaway, Sam Peckinpah's heist thriller about an ex-con and his wife on the run from the law after a heist gone wrong. It stars Steve McQueen and Ali McGraw, who I believe met on set and later married. That, that seems like the standout so far, like the one that most people will recognize. It gets real bad moving forward. <laughs> okay. The, the Heartbreak Kid. These are, these are movies that I know people are going to be excited about, and now they have to choose already between The Getaway and The Heartbreak Kid as, as the front runners. Mm-hmm. Elaine May's dramedy about a newlywed man who falls in love with another woman on his honeymoon. It stars Charles Grodin, Sybil Shepard, and Jeannie Berlin. Hitman. George Armitage's crime drama about an ex-cop trying to uncover the mystery of his brother's death in Los Angeles's underground porn scene. It stars Bernie Casey and Pam Greer. Images. Robert Altman's horror drama about an unstable children's author killing off a series of demons while struggling with her own sanity. It stars Susanna York and Rene Abergenois. Jeremiah Johnson. Sidney Pollock's adventure film about an aspiring hermit mountain man targeted by the Crow Tribe, and set on a warpath. It stars Robert Redford, Will Greer, and Del Bolton. The Life and Times of Judge Roy Bean. John Huston's dramedy about a self-appointed Texas judge who dispenses his own brand of justice, starring Paul Newman, Jacqueline Bissett, Tab Hunter, John Huston, Stacey Keach, Roddy McDowell, Anthony Perkins, Anthony Zerby, and Ava Gardner. Well, that's Dang. a cast. Right? Man of La Mancha, Arthur Hiller's drama fantasy, retelling the Don Quixote story, starring Peter O'Toole, Sophia Loren, and James Coco. <laughs> I love that. I hope James Coco is Sancho. Pasta. He is. He is. <laughs> he absolutely is. But Peter O'Toole as Don Quixote is brilliant. I just love yeah. that casting. The Poseidon Adventure. Oh, man. Ronald Neem's disaster epic about the overturning of a cruise ship at sea and the struggle of nine survivors to escape it before it goes down. It stars Gene Hackman, Ernest Borgnine, Red Buttons, Shelley Winters, Roddy McDowell, Stella Stevens, Jack Albertson, Pamela Sue Martin, and Leslie Nielsen. I mean, don't pick that one unless you want to just hear us liking it a bunch. Yeah. That's <laughs> fine with me. And finally, Sleuth. Ooh. Oh. Joseph L. Mankiewicz's mystery thriller about a battle of wits between a game master and his wife's lover. It stars Sir Lawrence Olivier and Michael Caine each of which will be celebrating their 50th anniversaries this December. You know what? Pick that one. That's an insane month of yes. films. But Sleuth, I think, would be a really fun one to actually sit down and work through, though I'm sure it's a lot of work for you. I'm sorry. I mean, the cast part would go real the quick. Ca- the cast is quick. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but just can you imagine being like a film lover in December of 1972 and seeing all these films for the first time? That's crazy. Yeah. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing Mommy Dearest which IMDb describes like so. I'm going to read this exactly how the person typed it into IMDb and IMDb left it at the top of their page. The abusive and traumatic adoptive upbringing of Christina Crawford at the hands of her mother, screen queen Joan Crawford, is depicted. (laughs) Is depicted. Good, because I wouldn't have known that that had anything to do with the film unless you explained at the end that this is the summary of the film. (laughs) You could have just ended it at Crawford. You could take out the word adoptive because it just feels clunky. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Anyway, we leave you now with the trailer 
for Mommy Dearest. Running out of uh, clips from the beginning of the show to reference that we haven't already covered now. Because we're about to get uh, cross no more wire hangers off the list. responsibility and what you're really doing is denying one of your children the opportunity to live a wonderful and advantaged life you're a lucky little girl and very expensive trust me a lot of favors christina darling i'm gonna make a perfect life for you are you having a happy birthday christina darling this is the best party i ever had i love you mommy dearest i love you tina darling Lost again. It's not fair. You're bigger than I am. Ah, but nobody ever said that life was fair, Tina. I will always beat you. Then I'm not going to play with you anymore. Ever. I'll tell you what you're going to do. You're going to march yourself upstairs to your room and we'll stay there. No, I won't. Yes, you will. No! You are not getting up from this table until you have finished that meat. Have I ever lied to you in your whole career or given you one piece of bad advice? Your treatment of me has been divine. Good. I want you to leave Metro. My wonderful friends. Leave Metro. Your pictures, one after another, are losing money. You have made me Theater owners voted you box office poison. Making fun of me? Mayor should know the price I pay. Truth is, you're getting old. You're nothing but a rotten, crooked lawyer. The biggest female star he's got. Look at this roar. Do you think it's clean? Yes, mommy dearest. When I asked you to call me that, I wanted you to mean it. Joan Crawford, the most dramatic role of her life was her life. Frank Kiblons presents Faye Dunaway as Joan Crawford in Mommy Dearest. <laughs> 